So I'm going to begin with a word of prayer, and I'm going to get right into this. If you didn't get a handout, they're on the music stand. Sermon, Anatomy, and Analysis. Tell that your pastor still loves alliteration and uses it frequently, for better or for worse. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we come before you humbly. We thank you for this opportunity this morning to consider a very important topic, the topic of the sermon. Lord, we listen to sermons all the time, and we are thankful that we have the opportunity to, to hear them once a week at least, every Lord's Day. And we want to be better students of the sermon, Lord. We want to be better students of your word preached. And so we pray that this time would glorify your glorious, gracious name and would be used to edify us and help us to, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so a few, uh, a handful of months ago as I was... Uh, preparing what we're going to do for ABF 2023, I thought, well, in, in light of the formation of the search committee, and just given the fact that you all hear sermons, you know, every Lord's Day, how about I do a standalone uh, message, a uh, topic, a uh, lesson on the sermon? And uh, I didn't want to interrupt the First Peter study, so this was the soonest I could put it on schedule. At the same time, um, <clears throat> I didn't want to have it too close to the previous study that we had. And you recall somewhere around, uh, maybe it was the summer of last year, we had a, a series on corporate worship and all the elements of corporate worship. And we talked about the word preached and uh, the word in sacramental form. And, but here, I want to focus just on that preached word. Uh, so like I said, I was thinking about this for a number of months, um, and one book that will help you all if you want to uh, read it is one that we went through as a men's group. The men's Bible study was Expository Preaching by David Strain. This is not for pastors as much as it is for church members, for the congregation. It's a very good book if you are interested in uh, it in, in more detail. But uh, I came recently to a news article that I think challenges what I'm going to talk to you about. And Vern Reeves, he's always kind to go through the newspaper and cut out a news piece for me. So that's what he did. He left this on my desk about two Saturdays ago. Have you guys heard of Chat GPT? Okay. So it's, it's an artificial intelligence thing that crafts communication, if you will. Okay. Well, this news piece um, is Pastor's View. Sermons written by Chat GPT will have no soul. Okay. So apparently, there has been uh, this experiment of throwing, giving some parameters of a sermon and allowing AI to. Write a sermon for it for you. Oh. Okay? Uh, and I won't read the whole article, but uh, there's one scholar, a guy named Todd Brewer, New Testament scholar, managing editor of Christian website Mockingbird. I don't know what that website is, but there it is. Wrote in December about an experiment of his own, asking Chat GPT to write a Christmas sermon for him. He was specific, requesting a sermon, quote, based on Luke's birth narrative with quotations from Karl Barth, Martin Luther, Irenaeus of Leon, and Barack Obama. It's, a, it's, a, it's an array of sources. Brewer wrote that he was, quote, not prepared when ChatGPT responded with a creation that met his criteria and is, quote, better than several Christmas sermons I have heard over the years. The AI even seems to understand what makes the birth of Jesus genuinely good news. You have to read the whole article. Um, if you just looked up pastor and sermon and chat GPT, you'll, you'll get it. But clearly, uh, some you know, technology, it's good, right? 
But now some are going to be using technology to uh, craft sermons for themselves rather than do the hard work. Because sermon writing is really hard work. Uh, and hey, if you can come up with something that's better quality than what you would have produced, why not, why not go for it, right? Speaking sarcastically there, okay, I certainly do not endorse this kind of activity. Uh, and in the article, um, the major criticism of chat GPT with respect to sermon writing is it, it has no soul, okay? It doesn't have the human element involved. It, it doesn't have the, the warmth and the sympathy and all that comes with being uh, a preacher and a pastor. Also, I think it's, um, well, a dereliction of duty. Okay, so as I mentioned, this message is connected to, um, yes, in plagiarism, right? I'm sorry. I just, no, you're, no, you're right. I was thinking out loud, I should have given that. No, I mean, there are, a lot of, there are a lot of problems with this, yeah. as you just mentioned, plagiarism would be, would be one. Um, but as I mentioned, this topic is connected to you know, a study that we had done last year on corporate worship, and I'm just going to pull out a few of the uh, things that I had said back then, just as a reminder. You know, a sermon is, um, the Holy Scripture is being heralded, remember it's a heraldic event, uh, it's being heralded by a lawfully ordained minister who explains, who illustrates, and who applies a particular text to the glory of Christ. The larger catechism, 155, I've put this before you over and over again because it is very important. The Spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word, an effectual means of enlightening, convincing, and humbling sinners, of driving them out of themselves and drawing them unto Christ, of conforming them to His image and subduing them to His will, of strengthening them against temptations and corruptions, of building them up in grace, and establishing their hearts in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. So, in our own uh, standards, the larger catechism, there is the recognition that reading the Word of God is very important. But, but there's an especial importance that is placed on the preaching of the Word. And Martin Luther, uh, in his he said in Latin, Praedicatio verbi dei est verbum dei, which means the preaching of the word of God is the word of God. As we mentioned last, uh, yesterday in Bible study, <clears throat> to the degree that the pastor or preacher is preaching faithfully the text of scripture is the degree to which you are hearing the voice of God. Calvin says, God deigns to consecrate to himself the mouths and tongues of men, in order that his voice may resound in them. And he elsewhere says the minister is the very mouth of God. Charles Burton says, There is no worship of God that is better than hearing of a sermon. It stirs all the coals of fire in your spirit and makes them burn with a brighter flame. And we remember Jesus' words in Luke 10, 16. The one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. And remember, Paul, in Ephesians, he says that Christ preached peace to those in Ephesus. Nowhere was Jesus in Ephesus. But he was, by the Spirit, preaching to the Ephesians through his minister, Paul. But as Paul preached the Word of God, as Paul gave them the Word, it was a Word from God. It wasn't Paul's words, it was God's words. So we have the anatomy of a sermon, and here I'm depending in part on our own... Uh, the Westminster Divines had a directory for public worship. Okay. We have it in our Open Church Order. It's one of the sections. But uh, they have a longer treatment than what we have in our Book of Church Order. And there are just a few pages of... Fine, uh, one of the finest treatments on the Word of God preached as far as how the minister is to approach the text and how people are to hear the text, how they are to hear the, the, the sermon. 
But you're not, um, you're not unfamiliar with the sermon. You know the sermon has an introduction, it has a body, it has a conclusion. The introduction is the connective relevance, the so what from the heart of the text to uh, the heart of the person. The directory says, the introduction needs to be brief, it needs to be clear, and it needs to be connected to the text. Some people will, will have you know, a very long introduction, maybe 10, 15 minutes of introduction. <clears throat> maybe that's actually pretty brief compared to the overall preaching. Maybe it's, maybe it's an hour-long sermon, so 10-minute introduction is, is not long at all. Of course, people vary. Pastors, preachers, they, they vary in terms of how they introduce a text. Some will be content with, here's what we did last week. Here's what uh, the sermon was on last week, in case you missed it or in case you need a review. And then here's what this sermon is going to be on this morning. Others will have some, tri- some kind of anecdote or uh, attention-getting story or reality, some, something that will connect uh, the, the, the text. So uh, I'm just thinking about some of the sermons that I've done recently, and remember the, the one in Judges 5 with uh, Deborah as the mother of Israel who sings. I brought in my own mother who crafts songs for her children and grandchildren and saw some connection there between the two, and, and hopefully that was um, more engaging than maybe a dry lead-in. But in the introduction, there's always to be communicated the main point of the sermon, what we're actually going to be focusing on. Now, do you know why there is a sentence in bold in the order of worship, in the bulletin? Why is there a sentence that's in bold? Does anyone know? There's a bold sentence with a question. Okay. So for those who open the order of worship and see, there is a sermon outline. Not everyone might know that there's a sermon outline. But right above the outline is a sentence in bold. It's typically one sentence. Try to narrow things down really succinctly. And what is that? What's the purpose of that bold sentence? That's the one sentence like chief summary takeaway from the sermon. Correct. Okay. So that's, that's, your main, that's the main point. As the uh, sermon writer prepared, is coming up with the sermon, this is the main point, I want them to leave with this main point. It's a, a single major point of the sermon that is supported by subpoints. Now, uh, you're not going to get extra holy points if you do this, or you won't be marked down if you don't. But just some questions here about the outline itself. How many of you, I know your answer, Keith, obviously. How many of you follow along the outline? Okay. How many of you write notes? Okay. How many of you prefer no notes? No outline. Okay. My preference is to have no outline at all. Can you believe that? <laughs> but um, if you've had well, no written outline for the congregation, okay, not not for me. I'm not going <laughs> to. I would not do that. No. Let the spirit lead me. No. You just blew my mind right now. I mean, like a written outline. Okay. Now, if you if you've uh, been here with Pastor, when Pastor Owen was here. His outlines were very detailed, and they are very helpful when you come to the text, you know, as it's being preached, especially when you go back to the outline if you want to. Uh, very useful. And I have, uh, my preference before I came here was really nothing or very, very uh, bare bones, uh, but I give a little more, you know, filler in there because I've been told that the, that the outline has been helpful. But a lot of people will say no written outline at all for the congregation, nothing like that, because they think that a sermon ought to be heard, and it is, and sometimes by following the words on page, the person might be 
uh, overly distracted by the effect that can happen with just hearing it. Okay? Again, different, different philosophies, different approaches. But the, I, I like putting on the, the outline the, the, the bold main point. Now, something that you can do, a test, is not look at, if you're, if you're accustomed to looking at the, the outline, not look at it, and then write down, sometime during the sermon or after the sermon, what you think the main point was. And see how that matches or doesn't with the, with the sermon. I guarantee you wouldn't have it with the same language as as is written, uh, but you might come pretty close. Here's the general idea that the preacher was trying to communicate, and this is what I got. Does do they match? It's something to consider. So we have the introduction, and there's the, the body. This is the meat of the message. Then what the introduction is supposed to lead us to. The introduction has the purpose. Supposed to lead us to it. And the directory for public worship, as far as uh, the body is concerned, says the text, the sermon's text must be divided. Must be divided properly, must be divided clearly. Can't have too many divisions. And that's saying something, because you know, the Puritans had a lot of divisions of the sermon text, a lot of application points. Um, you can get pretty convoluted. Every, every preacher needs to make a decision about how much text he's going to preach on any given Lord's Day. The Lord does not reveal to uh, any preacher, okay, here are just the verses you must focus on this Lord's Day. And uh, a lot of factors that are at play, but sometimes a, a preacher is going to say, oh, I'm going to take the whole narrative, the, the whole story, and, and preach it as a, as a unit, and other times, I'm going to narrow, just you know, focus on this one verse. Or if you're Martin Lloyd Jones, you can preach a whole sermon on the word "but," uh, and you can get really, uh, really detailed in, in that. He was preaching on, on Romans and came to that word "but," you know, but the grace of God, you know, and that contrast. So you have to make decisions. No two orderings will be the same. That's why. And you get any preacher, two different preachers, five different preachers, ten different preachers on a given text, and you're going to have different orderings. Okay, there's going to be a different uh, difference of focus. Um, though, of course, the meaning of the text is the same. The, the preacher might take it one way, and another preacher will take it a different way. You cannot preach all of the text on any given time, so care is needed. And you might be dissatisfied with, uh, we, we come through judges and I, and I didn't key in on a particular verse. Well, what about that verse? Well, what about that reference? You, know, you didn't talk about that. That's true, I didn't. I can't talk about everything all the time. You've got to be selective. And there must be, um, as, as we're coming to the text, we identify the major doctrine of the text, or doctrines of the text. So, any given text is going to say something about sin, or an attribute of God, uh, the covenant. Um, uh, it could be uh, something like a justification, or adoption, sanctification. There's so many different doctrines that might be at play in any given text. And the preacher is going to maybe key in on, on one or two of the doctrines. Can't talk about all of them. Uh, last, uh, last Lord's Day, in the morning... Uh, it was the theme was peace, okay, and that was because of the altar that was was built. The Lord is peace. Though there were many other things that could be talked about, peace was the overarching theme. So, got to address uh, different major doctrines, and then explain, explain the the doctrines, explain the texts, explain as needed from the nature of the text itself, or because the, the preacher knows the listeners that they need a certain explanation, maybe they are deficient in understanding something that uh, 
they, they're ignorant of it, and they need to, they need to grow in a particular doctrine, and so that's what the, the preacher is going to focus on. The, the preacher exegetes, guess what that means, to exegete? To explain, yes. What was that? In detail. In detail, yes. Okay, so the, the, the preacher exegetes not just the text itself, the text of Scripture, but also the heart of man, okay? He, he is to be a student of Bible and a student of humanity. And the sermon is the connection, is, is making application of the text, the Word of God, to the heart of man. So the, uh, the preacher has to examine, how, how am I going to get this across? Where, where does my congregation uh, need to uh, grow in explanation, in understanding this text, to understand God, to understand the heart, and on and on? Michael, and, sorry, is that the analogia of the day? Is that where we are on this? Uh... No, but I was just about to say it. Should have I given you an outline? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it would be good to have an outline for this. You can go back to it. So the analogy of fide is the analogy of faith. And this is a, this is a hermeneutical principle. It's a, a principle by which we interpret Scripture. And it basically says that Scripture interprets Scripture. That we allow the Word of God to speak the uh, explanation of any given text. We, God doesn't say everything in any given verse, but God says everything we need to know in his whole word. So sometimes we go to a place in, uh, you know, in, in Luke to help us understand a, a text in Leviticus. Okay? We, we, uh, we use all of the word of God to help us understand the word of God. That's, that's how... Um, a student of the scripture should approach the Bible. What does the word of God elsewhere say on this matter? We can avoid controversy. We can avoid contradiction. You know, if you say that um, you believe that Jesus is one, and, and if you do that, that's, that's good. You say, well, but isn't the, the, the Father's God? And the text says that Jesus is God. The text says that the Spirit is God. Are, are these three gods? No. Knowing the analogy of Scripture, there's only one God, and there are three persons. But there's no single text in the Bible that says, God is one God and three persons. There you go. Trinity. Okay. That'd be nice. Uh, but we, we have, we allow, you know, we um, go to the Word of God to understand all of the Word of God. And the sermon itself is in argument. Okay. There is a point that is intended to be made and the listener is intended to be uh, persuaded, convinced of this point based on the proper explanation of the scripture. And uh, there are at times apologetics involved. Sometimes there are things that, are, that just arise from the text that we might have to ask questions about. And we're not coming to it with a spirit of skepticism, but just maybe confusion. We want to know more about, about, what, um, about what it says. And one recent example, uh, I think I could say this, you know, we're, we're all Calvinists in this room. Or at least, if we're not, uh, that's what this church teaches as a summary of the faith. And so, in, uh, a couple of weeks ago in evening worship, I preached on 3rd John, and there was a theme about doing good. Okay. But as I'm coming to the text, I said, well, there's, we're told here to, to do a good thing. Wait a minute. As Calvinists, can we do anything good? Yeah. And so this is a question that, that I have, and like, well, maybe some of the church members also have this question, because, you know, total depravity. Nothing good comes from us, and that's true. And so, apologetically, you're trying to uh, argue for the the, the, pri the proper sense in which believers can do good. They, they can, because they, are, they can bear fruit. In fact, we're commanded to bear fruit, because we're attached to the vine. That was just one uh, example of apologetics. Uh, sometimes 
there are textual issues as well. And you might, especially when we went through the Gospel of Mark, there were times when a verse was not there in the ESV. You remember that? And uh, I, I might make a comment about its inclusion. I did a whole ABF lesson on why I was going to preach Mark 16, 9 through 20. That's, that was an apologetic uh, defense of that text. Though I did that in the context of ABF, something like that on a, on a lower scale can be done when, when the, the sermon is being preached. But the preacher is, is not to create doubt. Okay? The directory is very clear that he should not create doubt or entertain empty and endless dialogues. In other words, don't provoke the confusion of the listener if they're not even thinking about it. If they're not thinking about a particular issue, then you'd be very careful on how, how you raise that up because uh, that could cause more harm than good. One example would be uh, if somebody in the spirit of Socrates is saying, well, maybe, maybe Jesus isn't the Son of God. And let's, let's work through that. I can see some value in that, but at the same time, there are too many people who are confused, and who are even perhaps doubting that. And a lot of, a lot of, um, a lot of members might have, from one time or another, a weak faith, and you don't want to add to that confusion. You want to help them. Yes, this is, this is the Word of God. Jesus is clearly the Son of God. He says, it, says so over and over again. The preacher needs to do well not to add confusion, but to bring clarity. So often, um, because remember the preached word is a thus saith the Lord. And so, I avoid, as much as I can for anyway, anyways, I avoid, well I think this is happening. I think this is what's going on. Because I'm not preaching different opinions. Here's what, you know, just different ruminations and Philosophers think this, and theologians say that. No, I'm preaching the Word of God. I want to bring clarity to what, uh, what the Word is saying. And some issues are harder to understand than, than others, and the preacher needs to be mindful of those, of course. Illustration is another factor of the sermon. There's an explanation, there's an illustration of a particular doctrine, the point being made. And these illustrations can come from the scriptures themselves. Sometimes the scriptures illustrate very well the, the doctrinal point or doctrinal point uh, that is being made. You can pull historical illustrations. I'm going to mention John Knox briefly in the sermon this morning. And it's a good illustration. Uh, personal illustrations. Illustration from your own life, uh, your own family setting. Those might illustrate, those might uh, help to explain um, or illustrate the particular text. Cultural illustrations, what we're, what we're talking about, maybe a news article, uh, maybe what people are discussing. But the directory says, the illustration needs to be full of light and such as may convey the truth into the hearer's heart with spiritual delight. Now, this needs to be said, not every illustration is going to land for you as it will for others. Nor is every illustration intended for you specifically. Okay? So some people will really like Lord of the Rings references. You know, I know that there are a handful of people who like, give me all those Lord of the Rings references you can give me. Okay? I will receive them well. And others will say, another, another Lord of the Rings reference? <coughs> haven't read the books? Haven't watched the movies? I don't want Star Wars or Star Trek. Harry Potter, or a parenting illustration. Well, I'm not a parent, so it doesn't relate to me. Okay. So not every illustration is for you specifically. But that doesn't mean it's not for others. And uh, it's the same point for the, the argument, or the application, or the explanation. Not everything, and I'm already anticipating um, the last part of the, the lesson here, but not everything in the sermon is directly for you specifically, okay, in the, the, the level of the, the nitty-gritty, if you will. But application, there's a lot of application. 
the sermon has to include application. This is the connection between the point of the sermon and the person, the person who's hearing it. And the Directory for Public Worship, as far as the preached word goes, uh, lists seven kinds of application. Some of these might be new words for us. But one kind of application is instruction. It's the teaching. Here, here's, the, here's the relevance between the sermon and you. Is your mind needs to be shaped. You, you need to take captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. And here's what this text says about any given doctrine, about you, about God. And so, instruction is one kind of application. Confutation. We perhaps know the verb form to confute, to expose an error, and to refute an error. So, so one application would be addressing heresies. And uh, next Lord's Day evening, in 2 John, I'll be preaching on uh, going on ahead of Jesus. People have left Jesus in the depths. And I'll be listing a handful of heretical statements. And then one application point of confutation. Exhortation. To exhort, to, to urge someone to do something. You know, that, that hort there is the word to urge. So, um, to press people to obey the word of God. Martha. Yes, sir. You need to take a second. There have been some questions that come up about the difference between an elder exhorting and the preaching of the word from just kind of get that. There's a lot of people who have asked that question. Not a lot of them, but many, just to clarify. So the question is, uh, Essentially, a ruling elder can exhort, but uh, a teaching elder preaches. And what's going on there is it's not that the Bible says uh, if you are a lawfully ordained minister, then what you do is you preach. And if you, until you get to that point, you're only exhorting. Okay? It's not, that's not what's going on. And every sermon should have some exhortation. Okay, that's, that's one part of the, the message. That's one part of the, the preaching act, is there should be some exhortation. And if there's no exhortation in a sermon, well, then the, the listener gets cheated, if you will. He needs to be exhorted to do something, or to believe something. But what, what's going on with this distinction is, is not in uh, relationship to the content of what's being delivered, but it is an acknowledgement that someone has been lawfully ordained for this particular task of pastoring uh, and regularly preaching, delivering the word of God. Uh, it's very similar to how the teaching elder has the responsibility for administering the sacrament, and he can do a wedding. But a ruling elder cannot do a wedding, though he can do a funeral, which is a bit odd. Um, <laughs> And a ruling elder cannot give a benediction. And a ruling elder cannot... Um, what am I missing? Sacraments, yeah. Okay. Can't, do, can't give the sacraments. And it, it's, basically, it's a way of um, protecting the, the pulpit. It's, it's a way that the divines, the Book of Church Order, uh, has tried to um, make sure that, that whoever is going out there and preaching is doing a, uh, a job, a good job, and has the sanction of the presbytery. Alright? So it's, it might be um, a distinction without a difference. Is that, is that how the phrase is? Distinction without a difference or difference without a distinction? One of those. It might be that on some level. Uh, but it, the Bible does speak about elders who, uh, who rule, who govern, and elders who so there is a distinction between TEs and REs. And the question becomes, well, what is the functional distinction between the two? If it's one office, but they're doing different things, well, practically speaking, the TE does, does these things, and the ruling elder doesn't do those things, like I just mentioned. Keith. Is that strictly in the Presbyterian faith, or do other uh, denominations... Follow the same. Yeah, uh, so. Instance, uh, Baptists, the reason why the Baptists grew so rapidly is they would just say, this guy's a Baptist minister. 
Right. Of course, they said Presbyterians said they're people that want to be ministers to college to learn mm -hmm. scriptures, right? Right. So every denomination, every local church has to make a distinction between those who preach and those who do not. And so that distinction looks different from denomination to denomination. But hopefully everyone is um, committed to, to not put someone at the pulpit who shouldn't be there. And so that, the, the licensure or nation, all that stuff looks different. What the, what the PCA does uh, is, is, is not shared by all denominations. The OPC, uh, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, has a stronger delineation between uh, the teaching and the ruling elder. In fact, they have three offices, and we have technically two, though humorously a two-and-a-half office is what it's sometimes called, because it is, or whatever. Um, <laughs> So they have the, the, the minister, and they have the elder, and they have the deacon. Uh, Calvin had a four-office view. you believe that? Yeah. Okay. Getting a little afield here, but <laughs> everyone's got to figure out how to uh, protect the pulpit. Okay. You cannot tell us what the fourth office was. Congregate? <laughs> <laughs> so there's pastor. There's doctor. There's pastor, there's elder, and there's deacon. The doctor is the seminary professor. He teaches the pastors. The pastor is the pastor of the church. The elder is the, the governing, you know, the ruling guy, ruling elder, and then the deacon that we have as well. So those are the four offices. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. I, I almost didn't say anything. I wanted just to toy with you a little bit, but I, I didn't do that. Okay, so dehortation is to rebuke sin and to stir up hatred for it. It's good to, to hate sin and the, the, because sin is abominable and you know, Jesus died for it, so we should hate it. And the, the preacher should apply the text of Scripture to the heart, that the heart might hate sin more and more. Uh, and comfort is another point of application. To encourage believers to persevere. We need comfort on many different levels, and the, the preacher is going to do well to understand the different um, doubts, confusions, uh, needs for, for comfort. Maybe, maybe it's, it's eternal life would be the application. You know, for those who do not trust in Jesus now, the application would be trust in him, and you will have comfort for your soul. Uh, trial we all have various trials. Uh, trials of various kinds come our way, and we struggle with uh, faith, trusting in Jesus, and the preacher will do well to apply the text of Scripture to those who are in various trials. Uh, exaltation. This is my favorite of the application points. And this is the one I, I think I personally would go to more and more. Uh, if I'm going to do... If I only had to do one, I, only, I don't do only one, but if I only had to do one, it would be this one. To help people see the beauty and glory of God so that they might love him, fear him, praise him with affection. Oftentimes, I'll say something like, you know, praise God, hallelujah, worship him. That would be this point here. You just saw your sin. You just saw the beauty of Christ through this text. I don't need you to go do anything over there. I want you right now just to think about this and, and praise God. Because he is the object of our worship. Now, um, two, two notes. One here is that there is more application than what is noted as application in the outline. I'm not going to note every point of application all the time. Uh, but uh, sometimes I want to be very clear. Hey, we're entering briefly point of application. Also, there's more application than can be mentioned in a single sermon. So, we're just, any preacher is scratching the surface when he comes to application. There's so much. There's the one meaning of the text, but many applications. That's why a lot of sermons look different, because the text can be applied in various ways. The preacher, as I mentioned, this is an argument. He is his desire to persuade. And the person... We talked about this yesterday in the Bible study. The, the hearer is not a mind only. But he does have a mind. 
And so the preacher is to get to the cognition. We talk about the, the heart of man, there's the cognition, there's the affection, and there's the volition. The cognition is the, the, the mind. Okay? The thoughts. So the preacher is, is desiring to uh, persuade the listener to conform his thoughts to the obedience of Christ. That he would think God's thoughts after him. If God says this, and I right now don't think that, the preacher is trying to convince this guy to believe what God has said. To conform his mind to the thoughts of Christ. Yeah? Well, I always thought of application as a way to relate what you know, the text says, and these, these wonderful theological points, to <coughs> daily life in our culture. And I never, in my life, thought of it as connected by these seven points. I mean, I, I recognize these seven points from the sermon, but an application that really helps me, a type of application that really helps me, how might, how might these scriptural truths that we've been exegeting mm -hmm. materially affect tomorrow and the week ahead. Yep. And these get played out in the day-to-day. -day. Does that have a Latin, does that have a kind of, does that have a formal point on the application? I mean, on the outline? Here? Does what? What you just said? application for next week, uh, the, the, the nuts and bolts. No, that would be that would be under the under these various categories. So I'm thinking exhortation, dehortation, and uh, comfort and, and trial. Those those four in particular, I could see being um, worked out very specifically. The day to day. Yeah, all of them. Yeah. Yeah, these are just the categories, uh, and there's a lot of a lot of wiggle room, uh, a lot of room to, to work through these. One thing that, as as I'm preparing my sermons, uh, what you said about uh, there's so many applications that you could go with, and you have to choose one. Uh, that that boggles my mind how much depth there is in every text, mm -hmm. <coughs> and that's that's part of the labor that I have to go through every time. To produce this twenty-minute, twenty-five-minute uh, sermon, and where I could go two hours easy yep. on the material that I yep. have, yep. and it's so much of it has to do with what this application that I have to boil down to about what happens next, mm -hmm. next week. Mm -hmm. you know, what, what does God want me to say on this point? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Rick. Um, one of the, I think, amazing things about uh, God's Word is that the same teaching, the same truth, can have all kinds of different applications for different people. You know, so you're wanting a, a practical daily application. Well, that might look totally different for you than not for me. And so I think the, the seven points there are pretty good categories of how a truth may be an application for you in one way, but it may be one of the others. Because then your kids never talk back. <laughs> yeah, well, let's see, that could be a trial. <laughs> um, that could be an instruction on um, how parents ought to better um, train their children. Yep. I mean, you know, you could probably put in that list and take that find different ways that it could apply. Yeah. But it would be different, you know, for, for different people. And I think that's just one of the you know, amazing things about biblical truth. Amen. As preacher is preaching, he also preaches to the affections. He wants to have uh, the listener's affections conformed to the heart of Christ. He speaks also to the volition conform the actions to follow Christ. Conclusion ties up, you know, emphasizes the, the major point. 
preacher has always been uh, exhorted to end well. They say, you got to start well, you got to end well. If you start well, then you're going to get their attention. And if you don't do the, the body of the sermon any justice, if you end well, then it'll be a success. Because typically people, uh, they, they, understand, they remember the, the last part of the message. That's what remains. The response was the preacher used to attack, uh, approach the text painfully. Uh, so not lazily, but diligently studying the text in the congregation. Plainly. Again, these are from the directory for public worship. Plainly, clearly in wisdom and demonstration of the Spirit. Faithfully to honor Christ, to edify the believer, giving himself to, to Christ, uh, exhorting the, the, uh, the believer to devote himself fully to Jesus. The preacher is to approach the text wisely, deciding how best to preach everything, especially the reproofs, not mixing his own passion or bitterness. So the book of Judges, uh, there's a lot, there's, there's a, a cycle, if you will. It's a cycle of devolution, as we've seen. And uh, I need to approach this wisely so that it's not the same message multiplied by you know, 25 or something, 25 times. And so there are a lot of reproofs. And how do we come to the reproofs? It's very important. People don't like being reproved. People don't like being corrected. And and so it needs to be a wise approach. Gravely, very seriously, not entering the pulpit or preaching casually, but reverently. Uh, the, uh, the Word of God is, is precious, authoritative. And uh, I've mentioned um, sometimes in my own prayers, like, you know, may the Lord strike me dead if I ever ascend the pulpit in any kind of casual way. You know, it's, it's very, it is, using the proper, or older understanding of the word awful, it's an awful privilege. Affectionately, communicating love with people. The preacher is for them, it's not against them. And you'll see, I um, use different language when I address you. I don't just use one um, kind of descriptor. Um, I cycle through different different ways of address. I would sometimes call you beloved or beloved. Sometimes I'll call you dear ones, children of God, saints, which is the most common use of how Christians are spoken of in the New Testament is saints. I'll call you Christians, brothers and sisters. Also, when I address you, that's, that is a sermonic way of saying this is application for you as well. I'm not just talking about what Gideon did, what Jael did, I'm talking to you, beloved. And there needs to be affection, especially when there are, when reproofs are given, because like, the reproof is not to be done bitterly or with, with any hatred for the individual, but hatred for the sin. And it's, it's, a, it's an urging, it's a pleading with the people. As the preacher is preaching this thing, the same stuff to himself. I want this for you as I want this for myself. I'm not, a, I'm not a sinless one. I'm a sinner, and I need grace just like you do. And hopefully over time, the, the congregation knows the love of the, the pastor, and so can take those, those hard words as done in love. And the preacher is, is uh, one taught of God. He's persuaded in his own heart by God of these truths. He preaches the text to himself before he preaches the text to, uh, to others. So nuts and bolts, nuts and bolts of uh, the, the sermon. We analyze it. Obviously, uh, you would be a fool not to analyze the sermon. That just means you're not thinking. And God does not want you to just hear without thinking the message. So there are some parameters to guide your analysis. You know, walking on the way of the Bereans. Questions asked, is this sermon biblical? Is it derived from the Bible? Is it pointing to the Bible? Is God's word the emphasis? Or is this the pastor, the preacher's own man-made wisdom? 
Is, it, is this just his own thinking on the matter? Or is this biblical? Is, it, is, is he authentic? Is he passionate? Is he, is he speaking in the spirit of conviction? Is he honest? Does he demonstrate pastoral sensitivity to the issue, to the individual, to the text? Is the sermon contextual? Does it apply the context of the Bible to the context of the heart, to the context of the culture, to uh, any language that people would understand? And is this edifying? Now, edifying does not mean I feel good about it. Okay? I really felt the fuzzies you know, from, it, from that sermon. That's not your uh, criterion for edification. Edification is, some, is that which builds up the, the listener. And sometimes build, being built up means I'm convicted of my sin and I felt bad. That's a good kind of edification. Especially when I, I'm not left with just feeling bad, but I'm left with the remedy on how that sorrow can be addressed. How that hatred for sin can be um, satisfied in the full atonement of Christ. So you ask those questions. And when you ask these questions, do so with a humble posture. Every sermon is for you. Every sermon is for you that you might glorify God, that you might enjoy Him forever, and it is for your good. But as I said earlier, not every word specifically is directly for you. Not every explanation is, is something that you need. Not every illustration is something that you, that you need. Not every application, not every argument, not every persuasion, not, not every of any of those things is necessary for you specifically. The whole sermon, of course, is, and you will get something out of it that someone might not. There are different seasons of life. And when we come to a different text, the, the meaning of the text didn't change, but our understanding of the text, the application of the text, might change based on the season of life that we're in. There are different ages of people, different spiritual ages. We're all following Christ, but we're at different points in our journey with the Lord, in our walking with, with the Lord. And so, um, not everything's going to hit home with you as it might with someone else. Even the best of sermons can fall on rocky ground. And even the worst of sermons can penetrate the heart that's been prepared by God. You can find something if it's a faithful preaching of the text. There's always something. If you have to say, you know, just ask the question, what is the one takeaway? If Everything else of the sermon just was awful. What is one thing that is commendable? So you ask, you know, as a way of obedient living, you ask, how am I led to know the Lord better because of the sermon? How do I know Christ better because of the sermon? Is there something I need to do? Is there something I need to stop doing because of the sermon? And maybe it's not something I, I didn't know before, but I'm being reminded of. Ask, is there one thing worthy of consideration? One thing worthy, worthy of imitation? One thing that I need to put into practice? One truth that I needed to be reminded of? And maybe it wasn't even the major point. Maybe it was just something that uh, the, the, the preacher said in passing. It wasn't in his notes. But the Lord directed that extemporaneous speech, and that's what you needed to hear at that time. Ask, is there something, anything in this? And if so, then praise be to God. A common response to the end of the sermon that any preacher is going to get is, I enjoyed your sermon. Thanks for the sermon, I enjoyed it. Well, I hope that you did find true Christian joy in the preached word. Praise be to God if you do. Don't think that that is sufficient. This was mentioned last, last week. 
larger catechism 160 on how we are to hear the word. Uh, they attend upon it with diligence, preparation, prayer. They examine what they hear by the scriptures. They receive the truth of faith, love, meekness, readiness of mind as the word of God. Meditate and confer on it. Hide it in their hearts and bring forth the fruit of it in their lives. And so on Sunday, after the sermon, with yourself, with your family, with a trusty friend, during the week, ask yourself, how am I, or am I, attending upon this text diligently? Am I attending upon it prayerfully? Am I examining it by the scriptures? Am I receiving it with faith? Am I meditating on it? Am I conferring on it? Which means I'm discussing it. I'm dialoguing with it. Or I'm dialoguing with others about it. Am I hiding it in my life? That I might not sin against God? <clears throat> Am I seeking to bring forth the fruit of this text in my life? And sometimes I see the, the general application and now I need to apply it specifically to me. To my relationship with my co-worker, my, my spouse, my children, society. So this obediently, this, this conference assumes that you talk about the sermon. Hopefully that is a good assumption. You should be talking about the sermon. You should be thinking about it. If not, well, why, did, why did you just come and hear a sermon? Hear this warning from Thomas Watson. The devil cares not how many sermon pills you take, so long as they do not work upon your conscience. Man, the way Puritans put things. So good. I'm going to say it again. The devil cares not how many sermon pills you take, so long as they do not work upon your conscience. It's similar to what C.S. Lewis says. Well, C.S. Lewis doesn't say it. He writes it, but screw tape. In the screw tape letters. The devil doesn't care if uh, whether you are uh, getting drunk or, or not. It, it could be as simple as um, being overly distracted by a card game. It could be so innocent. Okay, Just the littlest things to distract you from the things of God. If that's what's going to take, then it's fine. It doesn't, doesn't, doesn't need to be major. Okay, The point is to distract, to deviate your attention from things of God, from what is worthy of commendation, what is worthy of, of, of contemplation and, and genuine uh, thinking, that it might grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. And so you talk with one another as you talk about a sermon, talk with your family, talk with a group, talk with a couple, uh, talk with your spouse. Also talk with the preacher. It's okay to talk with the preacher about the sermon he just preached. In fact, he probably wants you to do that if you have questions. If you have any critical remark, save that for a few days. Okay? Don't just hit him with it when he's done delivering the message. Give, him, give it time. Think about it. Pray over it. And say, do I need to ask? Do I need to say this? Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. Think about it. But again, focus on what is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable. It's Philippians 4.8. If something concerns you, ask the preacher. Ask for clarification. Rather than make accusation, ask. Ask for a biblical reason. Why did, how did you get there? How did you arrive from point A to point B biblically? Show me, connect the dots for me because I didn't get it when you preached it. Ask what he was thinking in using this argument or using that illustration or this point of application. Speak. Have a conversation. You will both be better because of it. He will hear your heart's concerns and he will apply them if he believes them to be biblically sound. And you will be guided into his thinking, what he was intending. What uh, he was, uh, the bigger picture, the, what he was intending to communicate to the sheep of God. Well, that is it. And like I said, there's a lot to talk about in the sermon. But you're going to hear a sermon just a little bit. So maybe you can make application of some of the things that were said here. Let's pray. Our gracious God, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is, um, is preached and that you have designed the preached word to glorify your name. It is folly to the world, but it is truly wise 
to those who are in Christ. And Lord, we need your word. Even the preacher, as he is preaching, needs the word. And so we do pray that you would conform us more and more to the image of the Son through the whole, the whole service, but especially the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.